church culture to read a church sign that says Christ died for your sins and say, man, that's a very sad and morbid thought. (laughs) Or even go as far as to say, gosh, that's bordering on abusive. Like, is God a cosmic child abuser? How could the death of Jesus be good? That's the question we return to over and over again as Christians, and especially on Good Friday. And each generation has to wrestle with the scandal and the mystery of the cross for ourselves. So here we are doing what Christians have done for uh, 2,000 years, uh, gathering together uh, to celebrate Good Friday. If we're going to wrestle with the scandal and mystery of the cross, these final verses in Paul's letter to the Galatians are a great starting point. At the end of his letter, Paul grabs the pen from the scribe to offer one of his most passionate final appeals for the Galatians not to boast in their religious achievements or accomplishments, but to boast in the cross. And he does so with dramatically large letters to arrest the attention of his original reader. So uh, let me read Galatians 6, 11 through 18, and we're going to get a short, a preacher short reflection. So, you know, that's qualified there on uh, the cross here. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may be, not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule... Peace and mercy be upon you and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Paul doesn't simply say that Good Friday is good. He doesn't simply say that God was able to take the crucifixion, the worst miscarriage of justice in the universe, and somehow turn it to good in some cosmic version of uh, lemon, making lemonade out of lemons. What Paul says is that he's gonna, if he's going to boast about anything, if he's going to glory in anything, if he's going to be lost in wonder and worship and awe about anything, if he has any good news to announce, it centers on the death and resurrection of Jesus that we are celebrating this weekend And it's Good Friday tonight, so we're going to focus in on the cross. And I'm going to leave the resurrection celebration to Pastor Josh for Easter Sunday. Here's the thing that Paul notes in this final chapter as he's wrapping up the letter. Uh, Paul notes that everyone boasts, right? We all have something we love to talk about. We all want to share the things that have deeply changed and transformed and shaped our lives. We all have a tendency uh, to boast. And in our text this evening, Paul contrasts two boasts, boasting in human religious achievement and boasting in the cross. So we're going to look more closely at each of these boasts, and then we're going to spend an extended time 
around the Lord's table, centering our hearts on the wonder of the cross that we celebrate here on Good Friday. My aim for our time together is that we would see and savor that, that bittersweet goodness of Good Friday together. And so let's pray as we dive in uh, this evening to our text. Father, there is perhaps nothing more counterintuitive, countercultural, or unexpected than this Christian instinct to boast in the cross, to celebrate Good Friday, to make it a holiday. Would you bring this day home to us in new uh, and fresh days tonight as we consider uh, the language Paul has as he describes the wonder of the cross for us? Would you come uh, by your spirit, make these old truths new in our hearts? We pray it all in his name. Amen. So let's start uh, this evening uh, with Paul's uh, first talking about those that want to boast in human religious achievement here. One last time, Paul solemnly warns his readers about those false teachers in the church who want to boil Christianity down to a few religious externals, to circumcision, a kosher diet, a religious feasts, and the like. He says these false teachers want to make a good showing in the flesh. They want to look good, be good, upstanding religious types, and they've boiled it down to their religion, to something that can be obtained by mere human effort. A simple formula focusing on the religious externals. Paul says they've done this to avoid the persecution that comes with the scandal and mystery of the cross. And finally, in verse 13, Paul says that they're not only avoiding the cross, they're not even upholding the law, just picking and choosing which laws they want to follow. Their goal is not even genuine law-keeping from the heart, but getting more people on their team. That is why Paul says in verse 13 that they want to boast in your flesh, which is a pretty intentionally uncomfortable sort of expression. Boasting in circumcision. I mean, what could be more bizarre than that for the apostle uh, to say to us? The false teachers are looking for something they could quantify, something that will assure them that they are winning, something to assure them that they are succeeding in life. It's something to the effect of, we're killing it. 50 circumcisions this year? Man, look at how incredible this ministry is pumping people out, man. We are getting it done. We are accomplishing our goals. We've got this simple, measurable formula for success. More circumcisions, right? Clearly, our team is winning. We are getting ahead, right? And instead of counting scalps, it's counting foreskins, which is pretty disgusting, if you will, and pretty gross. But that's Paul's point, right? He is trying to just disgust us with this kind of pursuit of merely external, merely formal religion. And we could laugh at that joke because we're saying, what on earth? You know, counting foreskins, boasting in the flesh, like of all the things I did not think were going to come out of my pastor's mouth this evening, this would have been one of those sorts of things. Like, I'm never going to get that image out of my mind, right? But that is what Paul is doing here. He's trying to grab us with this graphic, dramatic language uh, to get at the reality right? that the externals don't do it. And before we just write the Galatian teachers off, you know, as totally uh, 
some relic of bygone era. All we have to do is think about decisions for Christ or baptisms or membership or all the things we love to quantify as church people to know that we're doing good, that we're winning, that we're succeeding, that we're moving ahead. And all of those things are good and well and wonderful, but if they are lacking the heart, right? If they're lacking the transforming work of God from the inside out, none of those externals mean anything. None of those numbers, none of those statistics, none of the ways the church likes to prop up its own reputation mean a thing if God is not transforming people from the inside out. And this is why Paul is so fired up about clearly distinguishing between the gospel and merely human religious effort. And it's important for us today because we live in a fairly religious part of the country, sometimes called uh, the Northern Bible Belt, Steeple Town, Jerusalem, you know, our own little holy city that we live in here, surrounded by Bible colleges and a thousand churches and uh, denominational headquarters, all that kind of thing. There are a lot of good, upstanding religious people that want us to be nice people, right? To support God and country, keep up certain moral standards, to don't drink or smoke or chew or go with the girls that do, all of those sorts of things. Maybe vote a certain way. Maybe go to church if the weather isn't too nice. Uh, But are missing and are embarrassed by the cross, right? The blazing center of the Christian faith, right? Just mere religiosity, uh, right? Mere cultural Christianity. We see so much of that here in the city in which we live. And people are quite happy to call themselves Christians and boast in their religious identity and their background and whatever denomination they're from. Um, But all of that can just be just simply religious externals. Uh, This boasting is, of course, not simply restricted to the religious, right? People boast about all kinds of things, many of them not religious at all. Here in West Michigan, some of the select ones, family, career, education, you know, our lifestyles, our identities, um, if you're in more, running in more secular circles, the unholy trinity of sex, money, and power, uh, those are the kind of things that get boasted about, lifted up. I know I'm personally tempted to boast in my work ethic. You know, what a good, hardworking guy I am. You know, look at me do this, look how busy I am. Look at how responsible I am. Maybe my theological astuteness, my credentials, my discernment. You know, I can smell a whiff of false doctrine a mile away. I have a master in divinity. Isn't that wonderful? Look at me, master of the divine, like Bartlett. I mean, what a pretentious title, right? Ridiculous here. Uh, My resume, my connections, I could go on and on boasting about my accomplishments and achievements, and you'd all say, how pathetic, how ridiculous for anyone to get up there going on. But we'd all do that, right? In our heart, in our heart of hearts, my list may sound ridiculous to you, but you've got your own. Uh, we've got our own things that we boast about, things that we look to for assurance, that we're, we're doing all right, that we're accepted by God, that he loves us, that he's with us, that he's for us. Uh, Bob Thune and Will Walker offer a really helpful question to assess maybe what it is that we're boasting and what we're putting our confidence in. He says, what do you count on to give you a sense of personal credit, credibility? Validity, acceptance, good standing, anything that gives you a sense of being good enough or better than others. These are the things that Paul is taking aim at in this letter. So so boasting comes pretty naturally to us, right? Paul has something to boast about too in this letter, and it comes in verse 14, and his boast is crazy. 
You know, we're, we've, we've given a list of things to boast about. Here's what Paul has to say. Here's what Paul wants to boast. And if he's going to boast in anything, here's where he goes. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Here's Paul boasting about a method of execution, right? Why is he so passionate about the cross? Why is this so central to his life and ministry and mission, right? That's what we're here to talk about on Good Friday, right? Why do we as Christians do this crazy, bizarre thing uh, of boasting in the cross, celebrating a day in which our Savior died? The cross represents for the Apostle Paul a decisive break between his old way of life, climbing the ladder of religious achievement to his new life as a follower of Jesus. He is done seeking acceptance with God through scrupulous Torah observance. He is done wondering whether all his good works are good enough. He's done checking all the religious boxes and rituals. He is done with the rat race of religiosity, the constant competing and performing. He has concluded that Jesus plus anything, equals a false gospel. If you pile other things on top of the finished work of Jesus, right? it is another gospel. It's not putting it too strongly to say that Paul died to that way of life. right? The, claw, the cross closes the story of our old life, and it opens a whole new story. And so for Paul, stepping out of his life previously as a devout follower of the law, someone succeeding in that lifestyle, going to the highest reaches, right? Paul has an entirely new story, an entirely new lifestyle. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was another follower of Jesus who would suffer and die for his faith. Um, He said something similar to the Apostle Paul in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, which I think everyone in here should read. If you haven't read it yet, go buy it tomorrow and pick it up. It is pure fire. Bonhoeffer says this in that book, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When God calls a man, he bids him come and die. You see, for Paul, the paradigm for his life is the cross. For Dietrich Bonhoeffer and for followers of Jesus today, the cross becomes the invitation to step into a whole new way of life, to walk away from our old lives, defined by our old values, our old boasts, all of our old agendas and values and perspectives, and to enter into this new life that Jesus has for us. In verse 15, Paul tells us that new life that he now lives is not a slightly altered, slightly cleaned up, slightly improved version of life. It's certainly not the life of sin management, just trying to keep it all together and look good uh, for the rest of the folks at church. It's an entirely new life. It's nothing less than new creation. Come back Sunday to hear more about that new life because that's what we're going to be talking about and celebrating together. In verse 16, the cross is also the decisive break between the old way of doing community and the new community God is creating. Listen to verse 16. And for all of us who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. The people of God are not to be defined 
by merely human ideas, rules, preferences, or cliques which characterize so much of organized religion. The new people of God are to be made of a people who have died to their old identity markers and now live exclusively for Jesus. They're done desperately trying to please others or fitting in to the arbitrary standards set by the in-crowd. They're done pretending they belong pretending they belong or performing to be accepted. This is a radical new community formed around Jesus. Tim Keller uh, summarizes Paul's conclusion this way. He says, ultimately, Paul says, the heart of your religion is what you boast in. What at bottom is the reason that you think you are in a right relationship with God? Paul is adamant that the way we are in a relationship with God and each other is not through something we have done, but through what Jesus did on the cross. Full stop, right? That's where we find our acceptance. It's where we find the grace by which we stand. Um, That is the foundation in which we build our new identity, who we are as followers of Jesus. Christians are people who don't simply acknowledge the cross of Christ. They boast in it. And this is why Paul signs off in verse 17 uh, with his scars. Uh, Notice what he says there, from now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. That's pretty heavy, right? He's like, those those false teachers, right, they're trying to avoid persecution because of the cross. Look at the beatings that I've taken, the floggings, the shipwrecks that I've been through, some credibility on this old body of his, a body that reminds his readers of Jesus who went to the cross, took the ultimate pain and suffering and punishment in our place for our sins so that we could be a part of what he is doing in the world. I want to close with Eugene Peterson's translation of verses 14 through 16 here out of the message because I hope it takes us just full circle. I hope you just look at this verse, these passages of Scripture that are so precious to us as a church, and I hope they just give you a new take, a new look, a new way of seeing them as we come full circle and we prepare uh, to come to the table. Uh, Eugene Peterson's translation goes like this. He says, For my part, I'm going to boast about nothing but the cross of our Master Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, I have been crucified in relation to the world, set free from the stifling atmosphere of pleasing others and fitting into the little patterns that they dictate. Can't you see the central issue in all of this? It's not what you and I do, submit to circumcision, reject circumcision. It is what God is doing, and he is creating something totally new, a free life. All who walk by this standard, the true Israel of God, his chosen people, peace, and mercy on them. I don't know about you, but I long to be free from the stifling atmosphere of pleasing others and and fitting into the little patterns they dictate. I, I struggle with that every day, and yet the cross offers us an entirely new way of doing life, of looking at life, a new freedom that we haven't experienced before, a freedom that comes through the cross. So tonight's invitation is to focus on the cross, to boast in the cross, to revel in the freedom bought at the cross, to celebrate the forgiveness we have received at the cross, to rejoice in our new identity that we have because of 
the cross. And so as we come to the Lord's table together, we get to revel in all of the good gifts that were bought for us here at this table. And Jesus' body broken for us and his blood shed for us. And so don't rush. See and savor the goodness. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And while you're at it, also take some time to reflect. 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 29, give these warnings. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy matter will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Here are a few questions to guide your meditation, your time of reflection as we gather around this table. What are the things you are tempted to boast at instead of Jesus, right? What are the things that you would like to take credit for? What are the, maybe the assets you think you are bringing to this table? Look, Jesus, at all the assets I bring. Look at how good of a guy or girl I am and all the wonderful things that I do and, and all the ways in which I am uh, pleasing before you. What are the things that you think you're bringing to the table? What other identities maybe are competing with your identity in Christ? I'm going to pray and then uh, the table will be open to all who are followers of Jesus. And he wants to meet you at this table. He's here. He's present. He is in our midst right now. He's, this is a spoiler alert, but he's not dead. Okay, we're going to celebrate on Easter the reality that he's here. He's present in this meal, and he wants to minister to you. He wants to meet with you as we gather on this table that he set for us tonight. Here at Redemption City, we take a piece of the bread and we dip it on the wine. Here we have some packets over here, and we have some in the back as well. Um, So I just invite you to just linger right now, spend some time in meditation, reflection on the wonder of the cross, anything maybe the Spirit is just pointing out in your heart or in your life, some new facet of the cross that you need to just marvel and wonder at, or areas where, where there's conviction of sin, there's weightiness, there's opportunities for repentance to come to the foot of the cross, receive the grace and forgiveness and mercy of God and walk into the new life that he has for you. If you're not a Christian, we are so glad you are here and we want you to consider the counterintuitive freedom offered by the cross. Jesus died to set you free, so reflect on that. Meditate on that. We'd invite you to put your hope and tr- trust in Jesus, what he has done, um, and, he'll, and you will experience that new life that Paul is testifying to here in this text. We want that for you. We're going to sing two songs to help you reflect on the wonder of the cross, and then we're going to send you out without our traditional blessing and benediction, which is waiting for Easter Sunday. So if anybody wants to stick around and pray, uh, the sanctuary will be open. If you have questions about the faith, we'd love uh, to talk. But for anyone else, we want to dismiss you quietly out of the gathering after that second song. We're just going to leave in the tradition of the church, uh, the lights dimming, um, walk out in silence as we anticipate the dawn of Easter Sunday. And so let me pray. I want to invite our musicians to come, and we're going to have uh, some just time to just gather, unhurried time together, you and Jesus, around 
the table. And so, Father, we thank you for the cross. We marvel at the forgiveness that is ours, the grace that you extend, the mercy is, that is ours because of the cross. We marvel at the price that you paid uh, coming down from your home in heaven, uh, God, to step into the brokenness and ugliness and messiness of the world we live in, taking all of our sin and our shame and our guilt upon your shoulders, taking them all to the cross. Father, we are so thank you, thankful for uh, the cross. And I pray tonight that as we gather around this table and as we eat the bread and we drink the wine, remember your body broken for us, your blood shed, that there would be a fresh encounter with you, Jesus, tonight as we spend time hearing words that you have for us, the assurances of pardon and forgiveness and grace, the invitation to a new life. Would you do your work, Spirit? Would you be moving and working Uh, And would you get all the glory from everything that happens here together this night? We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.